Stage failure is a step closer to success. You're listening to episode three of Learn With Us. I'm Ken. And I'm Nikos. Learn With Us is a podcast for developers that want to learn how to teach programming. Hey, good morning, Nikos. Good morning, Ken. So, last week we talked about uh, ES6 and... How's how's your class going with that? Yeah, the we've, my my guys are uh, doing, doing quite well. Uh, we've moved on to like frameworks now, uh, focusing Sweet. on em- Ember, and now we're just like building stuff with it. What kind of experience does the team have already? Did they, did they work with a framework previously? Yeah, they, they're. Uh, they, they've sort of moved moved from like back end and been using using Ember for for a while. Yeah, but I'm just cool. like there to sort of mentor and coach. Do you uh, do you feel like uh, the questions that they ask are are pretty high level, or do they want to know the ins and outs of Ember and and um, get, get to, to deeper topics? Well, over the over the years, that's uh, pretty much been this similar. Like, there's a mixture, you know. There's like a mixture of, uh, you know, fundamental stuff in Ember and some some more complicated things. And sometimes there's a mixture of me knowing the answer and then ha- or having to <laughs> like uh, remind myself how it works. Well, one of the things that I is, I haven't used Ember, so I don't really know. Um, what it's like to develop in it, but what what I've heard is that it's based on convention over configuration. So there should really only ever be one way of achieving a goal. Is that, is that yeah? Right? All, all the clients that I've used Ember with, you, you sort of know immediately what to modify, and it's, it makes it kind of comfortable in that sense. Like there's no like. You don't have to really do too much thinking, you know. Every time you ch- you change up, the right. you know the roots work work the same. The CLI works the same. Controllers, components use similar similar uh, syntax. So, in in that regard, if if one programmer were to to leave, another program would be able to kind of jump into the spot and be able to accomplished the same stuff that the the person before them was yep. able to do. Exactly. Cool. So um, does that play well into what I've heard as mob programming? Um uh, it, it you know it should do. I mean mob mob programming is this uh, new thing I'm gonna try. It seems to be getting a bit of a bit more there's quite a few block Blogs been uh, written about it, but yeah, I mean, yeah. So mob, the, mob is program- the idea about mob programming is like we have a team of say four or five developers that are working at one machine, and then if any team any team member needs to step away, they can easily step away, and somebody else could fill that role. Yes, yeah. The, the idea of mob programming is that like, everyone's like clued in. And following the project and 
sharing skills and exposing weaknesses, but you know, sort of facilitating knowledge transfer. And and with Ember, you're also got the benefit of a common common framework, common conventions. So I'm, I'm looking yeah. forward to trying it. Yeah, I think Ember is probably a, a good framework to do that with. Um, yeah, I've heard good things about mob programming. Um, do Do you feel like as a, as your teaching engagement ends comes to an end, that this team would be able to? Obviously, you're in the early stages, but do you feel like they'd be able to take it on and do this as uh, you know, bring this into their practice on their day to day? Um. I don't know. <laughs> we just have to go in and just have to try. It, I guess. I guess. Yeah. The best way to see if something works is if you try it, right? Yeah. It's, it's something that I can't remember doing in the past. I mean, this, I've done I've done peer programming in the past, but that was never really like enforced too much. I'm looking. For, I'm looking forward to seeing how how it works. You know, like the way mob pro, the way mob uh, programming works. You have like a group of like between four and six people, and you have one person being like the driver, which is the guy that's actually writing the code, and you have one person that's that's called the navigator, and he's sort of dictating the, the flow of ideas, and then the, he kind of gets the feedback from from the other members. Yeah. And then you have like a rotation every like ten minutes, and there's a tool that you can use that that does that. It's like an online tool that helps you. You add in a list of names, and then there's like an alarm that goes off every like ten minutes. And then after the five people or how many team members you have finish, then you you take like a ten minute break, and then you come back come back again because it's quite an intensive thing. It's like you know, if everyone is in a room, they're all concentrating, so you want to be able to have lots of breaks as well. Right. Do Do you feel like this this teaches the team members to work to one towards one goal, um, so they don't maybe don't fight against each other, and um, you know, one guy might see uh, a problem solved a certain way, whereas the team as a whole can say, "Well, this is." Uh, there's a there's a better way to do this, or there's um, a way that makes it more understandable or more the code readable. Um, so, so the team can voice their opinions, and over time, they could all uh, understand how the team works, um, not just in this one setting, but uh, if they were to go back to their own space and, and start working on the code. They would know what the team would say about a certain paradigm. They 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 already have that knowledge based on working on as a team in this mob programming sense. Uh, yeah, the, the idea is with this mob that they're going to learn all the the tips. They're all they're all going to anything that's good. They'll sort of pick up and remember anything right. that's bad that will will be exposed, and people will say, "Don't do it this way." Yeah. So are there any other uh, new tips and things that you're working on with your your class besides mob programming? Not not really. I mean, 
I'm I'm doing some stuff on. I'm teaching myself about uh, Firebase and oh, per- yeah. personal projects. Just, I'm teaching myself about uh, React Native. So, from our last episode, where we talked about React Native and NativeScript, um, I haven't touched NativeScript since we talked about it. But uh, have were you able to get up and running with React Native? Uh, I haven't haven't tried it uh, last week since last week. Uh, there was something called I tried something called the Create React Native App, and yeah. it's, it's like the idea was you don't have to download Xcode to compile the project. So I I downloaded like a I created like a, a national app using this, the CLI for it, and it came up with a, a screen. On, on the a simulator that had like a QR, QR scanner, I uh, just didn't have a clue what it was all about. So I'm gonna have to go back and sit down. And a lot of these things, like they're written by people, and it's like it's obvious to them how it's going to work because they wrote it. But sometimes if you just come into it fresh, it's confusing. So yeah. So, so have you seen the the um, progressive web app? Uh, they're they're writing um, hacker news apps in progressive web app. Have you seen that? Nope. No. So yeah. So the idea is that they'll in all of these native applications or frameworks, like well, maybe not native applications, but like in Ember or uh, Angular or React. They'll create these um, progressive web apps, and they'd all use the same ideas. Like they'd all build a hacker news reader, and this this is like a way for uh, Google or whoever to demonstrate how easy it is to do to build a progressive web app in all of the modern frameworks. Um, it's it's taken a little bit of heat from the community I think because they're like well not every web app is a newsreader and <laughs> there's um, a lot more that goes into building an app than just building a uh, a reader so even the to-do list app which I it t- does touch on a few different um, areas that is common in most web applications, but um, it's still very basic, and you know, it could be nice. It would be nice to see some more uh, real-world type examples in these frameworks rather than just a basic to-do list. Yeah, I mean, to-do to to do list is just overrated to me. I mean, I just it's just the most basic app that yeah, it's not not very exciting. I mean, it is a it is a crud. So yeah. There, there is that. They're, they're touching all of the, the necessities of uh, a web app, but there's so much more that can go into it, like CSS animations or uh, stuff, stuff that you probably wouldn't even think of unless you were given business requirements. And I think that's where they don't they don't start off with these. Here's the business requirements. Build an app based on these. We're just building an app based on the previous app. 
and that's what the to-do list app uh, demo does. It's like, here is an app, and you have a new framework, so, oh, go build a to-do list app in Vue.js or in React, and it's the same exact look, same exact functionality, just in a different framework. Um, there's no no list of here's the business requirements and um, build an app based on the business requirements, which is which would be nice. I'd, I'd like to see uh, demos take that approach. Have you have you built any um, progressive web apps? No, I don't think I will. Uh, mostly because um, I don't build a whole lot of mobile mobile apps, uh-huh. but. Um, The, the weird thing about them, is I, I've heard the argument that yeah, they can be performant, or in, you can in, still benefit from them in mobile Safari or um, Chrome on an i on an iPhone, but you still can't pin them to your home screen in an iPhone or an iPad. So yeah, Apple has been being annoying about that. I just wish they would just allow it more easily. Yeah. Yeah, so I don't think I'll ever get into it, but that's not to say it's not valuable uh, to learn that. Yeah, I, th- I think I really think I- iOS should should pull their weight on that. You know, I, I guess just just want to keep the money coming in the app store, right? <laughs> yeah, I don't even know. I don't even know. I mean, how how um, how much can they take from? the web to put in their pocket in the app store that a lot of the stuff that we're doing on the web is it's meant for the web it's not meant for to be stuck on a phone to be downloaded yeah and that's the only way you access it i mean even even the apps that you get on an iphone they generally come with a web app as well. Like there is a web app out there for all of the apps that I use. Every single one of my apps has a web presence that has a way for me to log in, access my account, uh, you know, message my family and friends or uh, attach files to something. Yeah. You know, it's all there. Now, Apple's just making you build two apps instead of one yeah i mean i used to so, i used to have bbc the app and facebook app on my phone but um i don't i, I deleted them i just use the safari ooh. now to, to use it on my iphone i like it you you deleted facebook <laughs> yeah. so i i haven't gone that far but you know what i have done is turn off all notifications from facebook i don't oh, i don't yeah. get notified of anything um so it this is that's an interesting topic so how much? How many of your apps do you let notify you? Send you push notifications, or have the little red orb that tells you there's an update? Oh, so, so, sometimes it, if it overwhelms me, I'll just delete all of them from my phone, and then I'll end up <laughs> having to check things manually, and that just gets annoying. And then I reinstall things gradually, and <laughs> now I've got them all going again. So, like on my phone, I have like uh, LinkedIn. I don't have. I have Gmail now. Yeah, I have. Yeah, there was that. a time where I I would delete the email apps. Um, I didn't have LinkedIn. Um, I didn't have Google Talk or uh, G Chat or whatever the heck it is. Now. Hangouts, that's what it's called. Um, 
and I've always had Twitter on my phone. I don't think I could ever detach myself from Twitter. Um, but Facebook. Facebook's one of those things where I want to get rid of it, but I yeah. know the moment I do, something important's going to happen. I'm going to want to get access to it, and I'm going to forget my password. So that, the the re- main reason I have Facebook on my phone is that I don't have to remember my password. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's just so much stuff on Facebook. Like, I just don't care about, you know, and, and <laughs> just people post. Yeah. And, and also now there's sponsored stuff as well. I mean, on the, on desktop, one of my friends, he's wrote a thing called Facebook Purity, which is really cool. Add-on oh, yeah? that, that blocks a lot of fluff on Facebook. Is it a Google Chrome extension? Yeah, it's called uh, Facebook Purity. And then okay. the subtitles like fluff busting purity or something like that. I met him in a in a like a self defense class in London, <laughs> small world. <laughs> well, yeah, you need a self defense class in London. Yeah, it's it's kind of. I know we covered this a bit last week, but like, I went to this Krav Maga class. Like, what what was it called? Krav Maga. Krav Maga. Krav, Krav Maga. It's a Israeli self-defense uh, techniques. Okay. And uh, we were doing this like session. We had these sort of rubber knives, and the guy was saying like, "You just don't need really need this in London because you know there's there's apparently for like eight million people there's like sixty sixty deaths a year, and most of them are either drug related or gang related and stuff like that uh-huh. but who would have thought like a week later like 80 people would have been attacked in one night you know right but, but there's there's very little you can you can do unless you're actually trained in this sort of self defense like a lot you know I mean right. one like, attack one attacker's hard enough but if you have three guys and they're all stuck together and um, there's very little you can do there unless you're practicing, you know, self-defense like that a lot. I mean, the guys in the, the IDF, Israeli Defense Force, they'll they'll practice like with some like face guards and stuff like that with multiple attackers, and they'll. Um, but yeah, it's. it's yeah. I don't know what the solution is. I mean, do we start arming civilians? Do we, you know, more under well cops? and. That that particular attack that you're you're talking about, you know, th- those guys, they had a plan of they they weren't going to survive. They knew they were going to die. Yeah. And when you're when you're dealing with situations like that, when you're being attacked by somebody that is not afraid to die, and in fact that's their goal is to die. Um, what what do you do and how do you how do you defend yourself against that so th- they were just running at anybody and, and doing anything they didn't, yeah you know so well the, the official government <laughs> advice is run was it run hide and tell which yeah. i guess is good if you're just like want to look after yourself but i'm not sure if that's really the best way to do it i mean if you had like a basic level of self defense skill in the population. It's it's kind of your obligation to go out there and, 
and stand up and fight. Yeah, I mean, I know in, in Israel, like most of the population is like trained in self-defense and up to quite a high level. And I think, like there in Israel, like a lot of the, 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 the population can defend themselves. So right. I don't, I don't know if it's the best thing in the UK is to teach people to run all the time. Because if you had have several yeah. civilians that were trained, and and you know. Mortal Kombat, in a sense, then you could almost train them to just rush the attackers, even losing their bare hands. Yeah. But I, I don't think... And in Britain, it's like... It's kind of a hard thing to, to, to do because we're kind of soft, in a sense. Like, we're not really used to, like, have to deal with danger all the time. Sure. Well, you you live in an environment where... The government has laws in place that make it re- relatively hard for people to cause that kind of violence and terror. So, I mean, for from that aspect, you, you know, that you you got it good, I think. But at the <laughs> at the same time, people see that as a weakness, like yeah, oh, or or a challenge, maybe. Like, oh, let's go cause harm to the country that has everything kind of locked down. Yeah. Um, I don't know. But, yeah, in in regards to what happened here in Portland, um, you know, of the three people that that were stabbed, um, only one had military training, um, whereas the other two were either just out of college or, um, you know, they they were pretty young in their life. So, um, but it is, you know, probably, it probably made it a lot easier for the other two to stand up and, and, you know, protect with having somebody there that had, you know, the, the military training and he was doing the, uh, you know, trying to talk the guy down and, and calm him down, you know, deescalate the situation. Yeah. Um, you know, and, th- and that, that kind of training is invaluable as well. I mean, not only you know the, the combat training but having the ability to communicate verbally and physically and, and try to you know de-escalate the situation is important too i mean granted when you're dealing with terrorists it's kind of hard to de-escalate the situation without somebody getting hurt yeah but yeah it's just i wish we had a a different <laughs> a different world um so, uh, can I tell you about what I did this week? Sure. So, uh, yesterday and today, today uh, being June 6th, um, I went to a .NET conference. And I'm, I work in cool. a .NET shop, but I don't generally write .NET. I, it, it is a language that I do code in from day to day. But I'm not a. I don't consider myself a .NET programmer. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, going to this conference and listening to all the different topics in a different. I feel. I mean, I've been to a lot of different JavaScript conferences, but the the .NET environment is very much the same as the JavaScript environment. Like all of the people there are super friendly and. They are willing to share. 
And I don't know if it was this way, you know, 10 years ago, but today, man, I, I felt welcome and I felt, even though I didn't know exactly everything that was being presented, I felt like the speakers were giving us enough information to go and, and discover it on our own. Um, so yeah, that was uh, .NET Fringe here in Portland. Yes, to do C sharp back in the day. Did you? Yeah, a lot of it. Yeah, I did it for about a few months. <laughs> so, because you're you love TypeScript and I do too, um, did you did you at the time when you were working in C sharp? Did you feel like I love types and this is it feels right to me or? Well, I was, was using I was using ActionScript back at also that, at that time, and I liked I liked the types just because I was used to working with it with ActionScript. Mm-hmm. I also liked the sort of the expressiveness of of C sharp, you know, like the generics, and it was just quite an expressive language. And then I found yeah. like TypeScript pretty soon after I was using C sharp, and uh, I really liked TypeScript because it was sort of like yeah. JavaScript, but it had typing. And JavaScript's kind of right. easy to understand, but C Sharp is like, you just have to really understand it really well. Yeah, so C Sharp or .NET or any of these things, um, it kind of requires that you know the system from the ground up. Yeah. Whereas JavaScript and TypeScript, you can know very little and still be productive in it. Like, you yeah. don't necessarily need to know the whole language of JavaScript to use it and at the same time you don't need to know the whole language of TypeScript to be able to use it um, you, you can use just little pieces of it and be productive I think that's one of the best parts of JavaScript so an interesting thing happened yesterday uh, a couple of days ago I found uh, someone's wallet outside my front door and uh, uh-huh. it's, um, it's got like an ID card or someone from Ecuador so this this morning, uh, before I'm going to work, I'm going down to the I made a, made an appointment to go and visit the Ecuador Ecuador embassy, and that's where <laughs> Julian Assange is. Oh really? Yeah. Are of all the random things that can happen, yeah. Are you gonna are you gonna talk to him? Say what's with the WikiLeaks? Ah, <laughs> uh, well, I don't know if I see him in the lobby. I guess I could talk to him, but yeah, apparently, it's, yeah. It's a totally random thing to happen, man. It's like <laughs> I'm going to That's the embassy this morning. Yeah. <laughs> funny. Um. So you know how I I had typescriptaday.com and I was going to write a newsletter two weeks ago. Yeah. I told you about this. Yeah. <laughs> so my plan was to have a daily TypeScript tips newsletter. So I would in. At the beginning of June, which was, uh, you know, six days ago, you know, last last Thursday, I was going to start sending out daily emails, and these were only going to be, you know, short little emails that gave tips on TypeScript. And I had plans of, you know, sitting down and writing these all through the month of May and never got to it. Um, I even recorded some videos on YouTube, and I was like, oh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make some videos off of this. Never got to it. So... Today, I, I pulled the plug. I said, no, I'm not going to do TypeScript today. So instead, I, I went to Medium and I created a publication called TypeScript Tips. Uh, 
Uh-huh. And this is going to be my, my newsletter. I'm going to put, put all my uh, tips out on TypeScript, on, on Medium, and then I'm going to once a week send an email, kind of a digest of, of all the stuff that I'm getting. Or I'm, I'm writing there. So it doesn't have, uh, I'm not saying that I'm gonna write, uh, daily anymore, but I, I'm gonna try to write frequently enough that my, my email that gets sent out once a week has more than one post in it. But. Yeah, it might be, it might be hard to, to do it daily. I mean, there's a lot of things TypeScript can do, and I probably only use like 10% of them, to be honest. Yeah, so the first, the first, uh, article that I posted today was was about using the built-in type system in JavaScript, so not even using TypeScript. So um, I t- my title was uh, type, type-safe JavaScript, or write type-safe JavaScript in JavaScript. How, how, how um, does that work? So, so you, you use the type of operator, and you just check the code at runtime, Right. So when you have a function that takes a string and a number, the two parameters, and this is in my post, but as you inside the function body, you'll then check, did parameter one, was it a string, and was parameter two a number? And if so, then you can process that function. And otherwise, in an, in an else block, you, you would then throw an error. At runtime, so not exactly the most exciting thing when you're developing to wait till it blows up at runtime. So my next post is going to show like, okay, this is how we can do this in TypeScript and save you the agony of releasing this into production. And yes. <laughs> you know, it's not exactly the most exciting code, um, but you can type check your code in JavaScript. Um, it's just so much better to do it at design time than it is to to do it at runtime. Yeah, totally. So that's that's what I did. I switched my my newsletter around. Um, I'm hoping that it uh, that it picks up. I I only have 23 subscribers, so we'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah. One thing I'm looking forward to is uh, ESX module support in Chrome. Because I'd love to be able to take a class and not worry about having to teach them Webpack or Grunt or Gulp and just say, teach them ASX models and then they can immediately use, start using it without having to, you know, set up Webpack. Yeah, that, that would be interesting to see that. Um, what what I've been doing lately is, uh, I, I might have said this last week, but um, I've been doing... Uh, shipping a polyfill for promises in all of my front end code if it's not built on a framework like like angular or something so I'll I'll ship the promise polyfill so that I can use typescript's async await feature um, yeah in my browser code but hopefully one day I don't have to do that again yeah I mean I think uh, even even edge now supports uh, async yeah. Well, and the only reason that I have to do async await in the browser, or the TypeScript will will um, handle the generators and all that stuff 
even down to ES5, so it's not, um, they have that backwards compatibility baked in, but they don't have promises baked in. How much overlap is there between TypeScript and Babel? Yeah, so, what was, did you share a post with me recently of you might need, not need a transpile yeah, code? Yeah, <laughs> I didn't read that, but, um, yeah, so how much overlap? I think Babel is going to go away soon. I mean, I, I don't know what the purpose is <laughs> other than um, having it as part of a build step that can do some, I don't know, tree shaking or even like with flow type, you know, pulling out your types. Yeah. Um, you know, like yeah, just I, some I sort had, of I hardly the, the care about Babel these days. I mean, the only reason that um, I was using it was just to teach it just for in the, in the class, but I just don't care about it, man. I just <laughs> well, yeah, so people don't talk about it so much, but it is baked into React. Like every React app depends on Babel. Yeah. Um, I'm not sh- I can't remember if Ember CLI, I think there's a Babel dependency in the Ember CLI, isn't there? Um, no idea. Probably. Yeah. These, I think they're, stuck with, they're stuck in this thing called Broccoli as well. Yeah. Yeah, Broccoli, that's something that it was at the time of Gulp coming out, uh, Broccoli, and it was before Webpack, or at least yeah. maybe before Webpack became popular, uh, Broccoli was a thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't know. In the future, you know, with ESX modules, you won't probably need Broccoli. I mean, I guess if the first time you load the app, you'll probably have to download like 800 modules, right? But they can be they can be cached if they're not changed. Yeah, yeah. There's there's going to be some sort of uh, validation. I have you. There's there's some new uh, HTML SHA validation stuff that's happening in like CSS and JavaScript um, in the browser. I, it's kind of interesting to see that, but. That's probably what's going to happen. It's the specification is probably going to de- demand that you have some sort of unique token to validate against. You mean like a, a file, a JavaScript file would have like a, a hash, and then it would know whether or not it, it, and modules change. So, say if you have like six hundred modules that an app downloads, how would the app yeah. know if it had to re-download? A module and so see it just change like one line of code in, in, in the ASX module then how would the yeah. web app know that it's changed I don't know but you know um, I think I think a lot of this H, or this uh, ES6 module stuff or maybe I shouldn't even say ES6 modules but you know this, these newer modules um, I, I kind of think that they depend on HTTP2 yeah, that's right. They do. So, if it, if it is dependent on HTTP two, then the framework doesn't really care about where the module came from. The browser is going to provide a module in some way, and that's probably all that matters. Is the browser will handle it with the HTTP two HTTP two? Did I say it right? Yeah. <laughs> Um, and I don't know enough about that to do, to talk about it, but it's pretty advanced stuff. Yeah. 
there'll always be stuff to learn in web development it's just like sometimes it's like if it was all being produced by one person you'd be like well that guy's really coming up a lot, a lot of stuff but it's easy to forget sometimes that there's like there's thousands and thousands of people working on this at the same time and you just can't right. run all and a lot them. of the- a lot of times we see like one or two people out there promoting something, um, but there's a whole team behind them that we don't see. So Google, for instance, they have uh, a big team that you don't see, but there's only a, a handful of core members that you do see like promoting these dev tools or um, HTML specification, CSS uh, trickery, whatever. But um, there's bigger teams that we don't see. One of the talks at the um, at .dot net fringe was I don't I don't remember the name of the speaker, but essentially he he got up on stage and said, "Hey, I want to talk about the everyday developers, not the not the heroes that we all worship, but the people that we don't hear about that." Um, that have made us better developers and brought us forward. So he listed off about six or seven of his own personal heroes that he's worked with at the companies that uh, kind of pushed him to learn more. And and some of the one of the people that he had talked about had passed away, and he wasn't able to thank them uh, oh. for. You know, being a, such an influence on their on their career, so yeah. Um, but it is it is interesting that we do we do focus on like this one person that developed this one thing, which it you know it probably wasn't that thing, and and we all stand on the shoulder of giants, right? So yeah, open totally. source software all came from you know other open source contributors like we all we're all building on top of you know javascript or um you know these other frameworks so ember is you know they have a great core team and they all came from the ruby world when ruby was you know it's been around for a while so everything just kind of derives from something else and and you know it's not just created in in an instant Everything takes time. Yeah, Ember has one of the best communities, most patient communities out there, which can sort of helps you cope with like when Ember becomes infuriating to you. You know, <laughs> like yeah. Ember syntax and stuff like that. I mean, Ember has to grow on you. It's, it's like an acquired taste. Yeah. So yeah, when I was when I was looking for work uh, a few years ago before I, I got where I'm at now, um, a lot of the jobs were asking for front-end framework um, type experience, and I had none. I had zero front-end framework experience, so I was like, how do I learn about Ember? How do I learn about Angular? Um, the resources weren't out there at that time, you know? Um, so I'm glad to hear that there's there's a community built around Ember and, and Angular as well. Yeah, Ember is the, the most stable uh, code base out there. It's the most backwards compatible. Yeah, like, there's, there's, if you write code in it, you know, it's very likely that you'll be able to run, you know, in future versions of Ember without having to be refactor everything, rewrite everything. It's really great That's in that great. regard. 
And there, there's a, a nice upgrade path to everything, yeah, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, I, I think we're uh, getting close to our time if we haven't exceeded it already. But um, I appreciate talking to you, Nikos. Yeah, and, always fun, Ken. Uh, we do have a Twitter account, so if anybody wants to follow us on Twitter, you can uh, look up Learn With Us Pod and send us your questions. Um, thanks for listening to Learn With Us. Please rate the show on iTunes. Five stars only. Take care. Have a good day. Thanks, guys. All right.